Chapter 19 of The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 The Mystery of the Cave. That was a night never to be forgotten. Woodhull's story of his hunt and the killing of the bear was capped with tales of hair raising adventures in the woods and on the river, of fights with bears, of narrow escapes from angry moose, of the rough life in lumber camps and the dangers of log jams all told in the simple speech of the Indian guide, the more impressive and convincing because of the matter-of-fact way in which he spoke. When finally he had withdrawn from the ruddy zone of the firelight, and with a brief good night had vanished in the blackness toward the village, the thoughts of the boys reverted to Plimpton's story of the cave and the bones. Here was an adventure of their own. It had befallen one of their own number, and thus became real to imaginations rendered abnormally active by the stories to which they had listened in the weird setting of the circle of flickering light, beyond which stretched the black, lonely depths of the forest, the cave of bones seemed pregnant with the promise of further adventure. "'Lewis, can't we stay over another day and explore that cave of Plimpton's?' Hal asked the question eagerly the moment the guide had gone. Woodhall poked the fire thoughtfully. "'I don't know what to say.' he replied slowly. We've been here two days and a half now, and if we stay another day we shall leave no margin of time for delay by bad weather or possible mishap between here and the end of the cruise, and that wouldn't be showing really sound wisdom, would it? No, I don't suppose it would, replied Hal slowly. Well, listen, four days of paddling will bring us to the end of the trip. At the rate we've been coming, we've simply got to avoid any mishaps, and as for bad weather, we've already proved that we can keep going through that if necessary. I, for one, am willing to take a chance on what is ahead and make the most of the present opportunity. Why, Lewis, we were going to hunt for that lost mine, and we haven't had a chance to even think of it. You've had a far more exciting hunt and a more successful one, I fancy, said Woodhall dryly. However, I confess that I should rather like to examine that cave myself, and I'll put it to a vote. All those in favor of remaining another day to explore Plimpton's cave signify it by saying aye. Tis a vote. A movement to adjourn is now in order. The boys were tired enough to seek their beds without any urging and were soon rolled in their blankets to dream of bears, panthers, and dens. Gee, this seems good to me after last night, murmured Plimpton drowsily and Woodhall smiled in the darkness. The next morning the camp was astir bright and early. Plimpton proved to be so stiff and sore that on Woodhull's advice he decided to give up the trip to the cave and remain quietly in camp. "'Of course I'd like to be with you, fellows, but it isn't as if I hadn't seen the cave. Fact is, I dreamed about those bones all night, and I guess that what with sleeping alongside of them night before last and dreaming of them last night, I've had about enough of them,' said he. "'I think on the whole that I had just as soon do a little fishing and rest up.' Supplied with lunch, rope, axe, and a supply of candles, the party set forth. Woodhull carried his rifle on the chance that he might pick up a couple of grouse on the way. The trail now being familiar was followed without difficulty, and the top of the mountain reached without incident. The hearts of Walter and Hal, at least, beat a bit faster as they prepared to enter the cave. "'Do you suppose it really is a bear's den?' asked Walter eagerly. "'No, I don't,' replied Woodhull. No sane bear would come way up here over those ledges when its feeding grounds are all down below. 
with plenty of good places to den up close by. It is more likely to be the den of a wildcat or lynx, but if it is, it is probably an old one. If it was in use now, Edward would have heard real and not imaginary sounds. More than that, he would have smelled cat and smelled it strong. All he mentioned was a musty smell, and that is evidence that the den, if it is a den at all, is an old one, long abandoned. I'm rather curious to see what kind of bones those are in order to know what animals got up so high in the days before this old mountain became bald-headed. The rope was made fast to the fallen pine, and Lewis let himself down into the cavity. Walter passed down the rifle, and Lewis laughed as he took it. There won't be any use for this down here, but I suppose it is always good scoutcraft to be prepared, he said. Hal and Walter followed. Each had a candle held in the end of a cleft stick, and when lighted the three flames lit up Plimpton's bedchamber so that they could see every detail. They found it very much as Edward had described it. At one end was a narrow passage into the cave beyond. It was a tight squeeze for Lewis, but he managed to get through, and the others followed with less trouble. Phew, it certainly is dry and musty in here. I don't wonder Plimpton wasn't anxious to explore without a torch or a candle, exclaimed Hal. Holding the candles high, the three stared about them with eager curiosity. The cave was larger than they had expected, perhaps thirty feet wide at the point where they stood, and seemed to widen out beyond the narrow circle of light from the candles, the length they could not even guess at. I don't see those bones, it was Hal's voice and it reverberated with a hollow sound that was almost sepulchral. "'I do,' replied Walter, who had lowered his candle. "'They're just over there to the right.' He took a step in that direction, and his foot hit something which rolled with a hollow rattling sound. Both he and Hal bent forward to see what it was, swinging their lights low to light up the floor of the cave. For a brief instant they stared in fascinated horror. Then both sprang back so suddenly that they collided and all but knocked each other down, Hal dropped his candle, which spluttered, flared up, and went out. Ugh! he exclaimed with a shudder. They had looked straight into the hollow, grinning emptiness of a human skull. While Hal picked up his candle and with shaking hand relighted it, Woodhall stooped down to examine the ghastly find. There's nothing to be afraid of, he said quietly. There's nothing more harmless in the world. Human bones are no more than the bones of any other animal, except they are to be treated with respect. I don't wonder that you were startled. Coming upon them so unexpectedly in such surroundings was a bit gruesome. Go back to the outer cave and get a breath of fresh air, and then you'll feel better. I, I, it's all right now, Lewis, said Walter in a voice still a bit husky and tremulous. I'm not afraid. Only it does make a fellow feel queer. "'What do you suppose it was, and how do you suppose he came here?' "'He was an Indian,' replied Lewis, who had been examining the skull closely. "'The high cheekbones and general contour of the skull show that. "'As to how he came here, I haven't any more idea than you have. "'This may have been a regular burial cave, but I don't think so. "'It may be that he was a hermit and lived and died here. "'But if that was so, we ought to find some evidences of it. "'In either case, there should be another entrance to the cave.' One thing is sure, and that is that this has never been the den of wild beasts, because the skeleton is complete, and the bones are not scattered. We'll look around a bit and see if there are any more. He arose and moved forward. Walter and Hal hesitated. 
They were not at all sure that they wanted to find any more skeletons, and yet they did not want to seem to show the white feather. They glanced down at the skeleton at their feet. Lewis had thoughtfully covered the skull with his hat, and with that removed from their vision somehow, they had a different feeling. And then, too, there was an unexplainable feeling of relief in the thought that these were the remains of an Indian and not of a white man. Woodhall was now some little distance ahead. In the feeble light from the single candle he carried, his figure was somewhat indistinct and a trifle grotesque. Suddenly he stumbled. There was a metallic sound, followed by a sharp exclamation. They hurried forward to find Lewis stooping over a gun, but a gun unlike any with which they were familiar was a flintlock of the early colonial days, and was an almost perfect state of preservation due to the dryness of the air in the cave. Near it lay a powder horn. Lewis examined his fine with keen interest. It must have belonged to that fellow back there, he said, and it pretty nearly establishes the length of time since his death. This gun is of the pattern used in the old Indian wars. Let's see if we can find anything more of interest. A hurried examination of the cave, which proved to be about fifty feet long, revealed nothing bearing on the mystery, and they were about to return for a further inspection of the gun when Woodhall discovered what appeared to be the opening to a passage. It was so low that he was obliged to crawl on his hands and knees, but after some ten feet of this it grew higher, so that by crouching he was able to move forward on his feet. Forty feet beyond, it ended abruptly against a wall of broken rock, and on the pieces scattered along the floor of the passage lay another human skeleton. Beside it was a hunting knife with a broken blade. Examination proved that the skeleton was that of a white man of unusual size. Such clothing as there might have been had long since turned to dust. A hasty search among the loose stones developed nothing save a tarnished coin. This, with a knife, Lewis picked up and rejoined his companions in the cave. Briefly he told them what he had found, and then each in turn crawled into the passage, for there was room for only one at a time. They did not tarry long, for though by this time they had somewhat recovered from their first feeling of repugnance, there was something so uncanny and oppressive in the presence of what they felt to be the evidence of a long-ago tragedy that they were glad to act on Woodhall's suggestion to get out into the open air once more. He himself wanted to make more thorough examination of the passage and the cave to see if he could find anything more whereby the mystery might be unraveled. By means of the rope, Walter and Hal swarmed up to the surface. "'My, but the fresh air and sunshine are good,' exclaimed Hal, drawing a long breath. "'You bet they are,' replied Walter. "'I should hate to spend a night alone down there. "'It's a lucky thing the Plimpton didn't explore any farther.' Woodhall soon joined them, bringing with him the old rifle and powder horn. "'Did you find anything else?' asked Walter eagerly. "'Only these,' replied Lewis, holding out a half a dozen arrowheads and a handful of dull red crystals. "'Found them on a little shelf of rock in the cave near the first skeleton.' The boys examined them curiously. The crystals were irregular, almost black in appearance, but when the sun struck them, there was a dull red tint. "'Garnets,' said Woodhall. Then he added with a curious inflection in his voice, "'Do you know what I believe this place is?' "'What?' cried both boys together. "'The lost mine,' replied Woodhall slowly, watching the eager faces as he spoke. "'The lost mine! The lost mine!' 
repeated Walter, wonder and incredulity in his voice. What makes you think so? I'm sure of it, replied Lewis. I begun to suspect it when I found the second skeleton, and these crystals make me almost positive. Listen, according to the legend, the old chief was credited with knowledge of a ruby mine. Now you and I know that rubies aren't found up in this country. Apparently no one ever saw those rubies close at hand. What more natural than that that famous necklace should have been made of garnets? Polished, they are sometimes very handsome, and to the Indian mind would be quite as valuable as real gems. The mystery surrounding the old man and the fact that the necklace was used only on state occasions and then probably was seen only at a distance by the whites would account for the mistake as to its true character and worth. That passage in which the skeleton of the white man lies was formerly the entrance to the cave, and when I examined it the last time, I found some small garnets in the walls. And you think that story about the chief and Tucker and Laughing Brook is really true? Walter broke in. Lewis nodded. At least that part about the disappearance of the old man and Tucker, he said. That passage was closed by a landslide. If you had not been too excited to observe closely, you would have noticed for yourselves that the rock at the end is of a different character from the side walls. Besides, it is broken and crushed, while the walls are solid. It is evident that whatever the cause, the two men were trapped there. One was an Indian, and one was a white man of unusual size. That answers to the description of Tucker. As I figure it out, the old chief had long known of this cave, and it was in the passage into it that he had gotten the garnets that were mistaken for rubies. Tucker trailed him, just as the legend says, and knowing that the old man was without his rifle, he followed him into the cave, either to have it out with him regarding Laughing Brook, or in the belief that he had found the famous mine. Something started the mass of rock above, and it crashed down into the passage. And Laughing Brook came up just in time to see it, Hal interrupted excitedly. Perhaps so, if that part of the story about her is true, replied Woodhull. The Indian probably met his end stoically. Tucker dug at that wall of rock until his strength failed. You see, his knife blade has lost its point, besides being badly nicked. And the gun? asked Walter. Was Tucker's, replied Lewis. He took the tarnished coin from his pocket. It was a silver shilling, and by dint of close examination they made out the date, 1759. For a while they sat in silence, thinking of the tragedy which more than a century and a half before had been enacted there beneath their feet on the grim old mountain top. At last Hal jumped to his feet. Let's get away from here, he exclaimed with an expressive shrug of his shoulders. It's all so kind of uncanny. The others were quite ready, and preparations were made for the trip back to camp. Before they started, Woodhull cut a stout branch from a fallen pine, and with this for a lever they pried a big boulder so that it rolled over and partly closed the hole through which Plimpton had fallen. That has been their tomb for more than a hundred years, and I hate to think of anyone desecrating it and perhaps taking those bones out of mere idle and morbid curiosity, he said as he covered the remainder of the opening with a heap of brush. What are you going to do with the rifle? asked Walter. I don't know yet, replied Woodhull. It is a mighty interesting souvenir, but we can't all have it. What do you suggest? I tell you what, Hal broke in. If any of us is to have it, it seems to me that it ought to go to Plimpton. He was the one who really discovered the mine. 
I hoped one of you would say that, said Woodhall, his face lighting up with pleasure. Perhaps, however, he will be willing to donate it and the horn and knife to Woodcraft Camp. It would please Dr. Merriam immensely, and they would be of interest to a great many instead of a few. That would be bully, exclaimed Walter. Plimpton may have the shilling, and we can divide the garnets and arrowheads among us, so that we can each have something to remember the experience by. Are you going to tell them of the village what we found? No, said Woodhall. It would mean only a lot of curiosity seekers coming up here and doing the very thing that we have just taken such pains to prevent. We'll keep the rifle out of sight and say nothing. Now let's get a move on and get back to camp. I expect Edward is boiling over with curiosity. End of chapter 19